It's time to unlap after the Canadian Grand Prix. We were all back in our rightful spots, meaning Nate Saunders went across the pond. You are home, dried out as well. Do you have your raincoat intact? <laughs> I do, yeah, I, I do. I didn't have it when it was raining at its heaviest in Montreal, but I do have it now. And I've come back to the UK, and amazingly, it's not raining in the UK. So I feel like I got that completely wrong. Um, but yeah, back in the UK, I had a great time in Canada. Awesome city, if no one's been before. Um, and yeah, I thought it was a pretty good, I thought it was a decent race. You know, not the, not the best ever, but pretty fun. You know, there's a lot going on. So I enjoyed it. We certainly missed you on the ESPN post-race show that Lawrence and I joined. Lawrence alleges that you are the most forgetful person he has ever worked with. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that is fair. So another thing happened in the weekend. I'm famously, I have a San Diego Padres cap that has, I've left it in different places, including at the weekend, left it on my desk. And Chris Medland hung the hat above me in the media center on a hook. And I didn't see it the whole day until we left the media center. Uh, and I didn't even realize that I'd lost it. So yeah, it's, um, it's something Lawrence has had to live with for a long time. Just my general forgetfulness. Often when we're walking to the car and I'll say, oh, I've left this random item in the media center, mm -hmm. or I think I've lost it. And it's actually just buried in my bag. So Lawrence is a long-suffering uh, <laughs> witness to all of this. Well, I remember rightly that Cap would still be on a boat in Monaco had it, well, God knows <laughs> where the boat would be now. But It, it, it would still be on a, a yacht in Monaco. And then yeah. this was it. Yeah, we were we were leaving the boat and, and Lawrence said, you've got anything, Nate? And I was like, ah, yeah, my hat. <laughs> it also would have also still been on uh, in a media shuttle in Budapest. I think it still oh. would have been uh, in the Silverstone uh, Media Center. There's all kinds of places it would have been had Lawrence or Medland or someone not pointed out that I wasn't in fact wearing it um so yeah but I've still got it amazingly it's one of the only bits of uh clothing that I still have managed to keep over over a long a long period of time so magic hat after all this is set and done you guys could write a book the brotherhood of the traveling cap instead of the sisterhood <laughs> of the traveling it's going that way Katie honestly it's really it's quite it's quite worrying um seriously but, but it just keeps it's like Jumanji it keeps finding me again it keeps coming yeah. back <laughs> I love it. I love it. Remember, if you're watching us on YouTube, like our video, leave us a comment, and don't forget to subscribe to ESPN for more F1 content. And if you're listening, hit us with a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Let's dive into the different storylines that unfolded in Canada. It was clearly a record-breaking performance and weekend for Red Bull. They hit 100 wins as a team and organization. Max Verstappen tied Ayrton Senna with 41 race wins. We talk at length about the dominance of Max Verstappen and what he's been able to do in such a short time in his early career. Can you guys characterize what we're seeing from him now that he is fifth, I believe, tied for fifth or fourth at this point on all-time win list? He's tied for fifth now of Ayrton Senna. Um, next up is Alan Prost, who's on mm -hmm. 51 victories. Uh, Max is now on 41. So he's right up there with the greatest names in, in the sport. And rightly so. I mean, I don't think it was really in doubt. It, it's funny how these things only kind of come into uh, people talking about it when they hit certain milestones of races. But Max is no better a driver after Sunday's race than he was before. It's just that he's all of a sudden got himself into this, this top five. But I think for some time we've known that he is uh one of the greatest um drivers ever to ever to race in f1 uh it, it was it was kind of obvious when he was younger that he was going to be something pretty special but ever since he won the championship in 21 then doubled down last year and then just is now accelerating forward it, it's clear that he is that good he had that battle with lewis hamilton in 2021 for the championship proved just how good he is and how fierce a competitor he is and so um 
really, I don't think it's any surprise that we're talking about him as, as, as one of the top drivers. And also, realistically, at the age of 25, he could uh, comfortably go over 103 victories, which is Lewis Hamilton's record at the moment. Of course, Hamilton is still competing, so may win more races if uh, if Mercedes get it together. So that number could still go up. I wouldn't like to bet which one would finish their career with the most victories, but he's going to be uh, in, in, in that area. I think he's going to be in three figures by the time he retires. Um, he's, uh, he's that good. He's on that trajectory. And uh, yeah, it's no surprise at all for me to hear that he's been talked about as, as one of the greats. What was the reaction on the ground afterwards from Red Bull? Yeah, I think, I mean, the thing with Red Bull is they, and, and Christian Horner, when you speak to him, is I think he's continually, they're just continually blown away by him, you know, by just the level that he keeps setting. I think actually they were, the race was super impressive, but I think they were actually just more blown away by, in all the chaos of Saturday, the rain, you know, the changing conditions. Max was still comfortably on pole, you know, he got through and there was never really a moment when you thought Max isn't going to make it through. And Christian just said he's just got such a such a, a handling of those situations that at no point do they ever feel like he's you know he's on the cusp of of really dropping out of them. Obviously, that's a big contrast to what we saw with Perez and we've seen with other drivers. So I think Red Bull and and one thing that keeps amazing them when you know and we've spoken to friends of ours at Red Bull, I think they're amazed by what Max does on track, but I think they're just as amazed by the fact that he has some of these performances and he's so calm before and after. You know, there was a story I think after that incredible. Uh, pole position in Monaco. Uh, one of the people who works very closely with Max said he uh, about you know ten minutes after doing the media sessions there, rather than the adrenaline th- um, flowing, he was just watching some gaming YouTube, you know, on 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 his on his iPad, you know, just chilling out at the back. And it just it's I think they find it surprising that he seems in his head to be quite removed from the awe that everyone else has for him. I don't think you know he he seems to show it in the same way. So and that probably explains why he is so calm out in front. You know, all these things happen. I know sometimes on the radio he can like any great driver, he can get angry with his team, but he just seems so calm and relaxed. And especially right now, he that seems to be getting better and better. So I think Red Bull, if you were to ask them, is this as good as Max can get? I think most people would say no, I think he can just keep getting better because mm-hmm. as Lawrence said, you know, the trajectory is just so, so good with him. And it's like a hockey stick. It's not, it's never eased off. It's just been getting better and better. So yeah, I think they're blown away by him. And I think it's always telling. We saw the same with Lewis Hamilton. I think, you know, when he was dominating, you would talk to people at Mercedes and they were just like, we don't know how he's doing it. You know, obviously the car's great, but you need the driver in the car to deliver. And Max is just going above and beyond to do that every week. I think that calmness can sometimes come across as nonchalantness, which yeah. is certainly a good thing. That means obviously he, he's at the highest of the highs right now. And as you guys have both mentioned, he's only going to continue to progress. Would you say, Lawrence, that that calmness and maybe nonchalantness is impressive or does it lead you for cause for concern that his heart isn't going to be in this sport for a long period of time? Um, I'm not sure about that because all that Max has known and uh, been a part of for his entire life uh, from the age of being essentially three or four years old is racing. Mm-hmm. And so I think if you remove that from his life, it, it would be quite a shock to him. I, I think he would be missing something quite big. And we've seen this a number of times with drivers when they're in the mid twenties and certainly if they're being successful and they're asked about, well, how long will you continue to drive? And they're always a bit reluctant to say that I'll still be there in 30 when they're in their 30s because the idea of what's going to happen in 10 years time when you're 25 seems a huge amount of a distance away and it seems like it's you know it's it, it it's hard to believe that you'll still be doing the same thing but 
the reality is once they get there and if they're still enjoying it and if it's still a big part of, of their life, then they will continue. And um, I mean, Max has kind of suggested that he doesn't like some of the ways the sport is going. He really doesn't like sprint races, for example. So he's often used that as well. You know, if they continue to add sprint races and if they continue to add rounds to the championship, I'm going to walk away. But how serious is he about that? I don't know. I mean, um, he's got a contract through to 2028 anyway. But, um, uh, you know, the sport could look quite different uh, even in that span. But but realistically, I think, you know, he'd have to have something to, to fill it with. So, yeah, he wants to go and race at Le Mans. That's quite clear. Um, I actually think he probably could do that whilst racing in F1. Uh, a number of the drivers were asked about that uh, in Canada after the Le Mans 24 hours recently. And a lot of them said that the calendar is too packed and they can't find a way to do it. But I think with Max, especially if he's dominant as he is right now, it is it is probably possible that he finds a way to kind of uh, loop it in. But um, even then, that's something that you can do when you're in your 40s. And, you know, there's there's lots of much older drivers racing at Le Mans. It's quite a different discipline. So uh, I can't see a situation where he gets truly bored of F1 because I think it's such a big part of his life that he will miss it greatly if he does. So even if he does, he may do a Schumacher or an Alonso where they take two years out kind of mid-career and then come back. Um, I could see maybe him doing that. But even that, I, at the moment, I, I think is is pretty unlikely. He he loves racing. He really does. Um, and if he sounds a little bit bored on, on the radio, uh, you know, that's probably just because he's having it a bit easier at the moment. As soon as it becomes competitive, you hear a very different Max on the radio, sometimes a very frustrated Max. And that shows mm-hmm. you how much he wants it. Well, going for the fastest lap a couple of weekends ago in Spain, that that shows you just how competitive he is, how much I think he does care about every single point in the driver's championship and ultimately the constructor's championship. So the competitive nature is certainly there. I just, I wonder at what point when you're winning, 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 and it's coming so easily, um, do you get bored as you mentioned, but, um, certainly we hope somebody will be able to push Red Bull in the near future, the coming future. Nate, let's, Turn gears a little bit and shift our eyes to the the opposing person in the garage. Being who's not who's not pushing him for those wins. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We need somebody to push him, and it was his teammate Sergio Perez early on in the season. Um, but of, yeah. of course, that has fallen off in the late um, you know couple of weeks, last couple of weeks. So, you know, why do you feel like Sergio Perez continues to struggle, especially when it comes to qualifying? Yeah, it's it's a strange one, isn't it? Because it feels like he's in a downward spiral, and I think that. It's very telling to me that Christian Horner has now, on multiple occasions, I think he said it um, after the last race, and he said it again at the weekend, he said, Sergio's going to stop thinking about the championship and go race by race. So clearly the feeling within Red Bull is that Sergio's getting himself worked up about the you know the championship. He obviously had a very good start to the season. You know, I think, you know, coming into Miami, I think people were starting to think, well, maybe Checo can kind of string this out for a little bit. Then obviously that was a really deflating defeat for him obviously was out out ahead max was starting so far back um and then yeah three straight qualifiers and we see this with great drivers when they're against good drivers it's very easy to suddenly for the for the good driver who's still very very talented in their own right to kind of get into this spiral because you you know checo made the mistake in monaco and that almost entirely writes off your chances of having a good weekend there so immediately he you know he he came he had that after Miami. Spain, again, you know, you're pushing a bit too hard. He's thinking, I've got to make up lost ground. You make a mistake again. So you're constantly having to kind of almost push harder to make up for the mistake that you just made. But the mistake you just made was to make up for a mistake you made before that. So I think that there is something to that with with Christian. You know, he does, Perez probably needs to look at it and just completely reset. You know, they're coming to Red Bull's home race now. 
Um, but it is it's bizarre as well because I think you know Checo's. I don't think he's been as strong a qualifier as as Verstappen since he's been at Red Bull. But I always kind of had him down as somebody who was fairly you know fairly strong in qualifying. And the fact that there's been three in a row, I think they've all been very different. But it just shows you a driver who's maybe not quite there with confidence. Who I think it was you know he you could argue that obviously Monaco was just a straight up mistake. But you know the the way the rain fell in um uh, in Canada at the weekend, you know it could have caught other drivers out. But the fact it didn't catch Max out. You know, you've got to give you've got to give Max credit there as well. So I don't know. It seems I think we're in another Bottas 2.0 situation, really, where you've got a very good driver who and I, I, I made this point as well to um, another journalist. If you're Sergio Perez, you've spent 10 years. You know, you, you I mean, you waited nine years for your first F1 race win. you that whole time. You never had a car that could take you to race wins. The race win you got was an incredible victory, you know, incredible drive from your on your part. You suddenly step up to Red Bull. You know, you suddenly have a car that's tantalizingly close to the championship. And in the first year, you know, you're not really in the fight, but Max is, and you think, right, after year, year two, I'll get him. Year two, you don't get him. Year three, the car's even better. It's possibly the best car Sergio Perez is ever going to drive, and he's falling short as well. So that, on top of the championship, it just must be a lot for him to take because he knows that this... These these opportunities don't just come to you every year. You know, if you don't utilize them, they can fall through your fingertips. So I think there's a lot of things going on there. And I think just for the for the sake of the championship, but also for the sake of Checo, I feel like the next race win for the it would just be very good if it was him who who won it. With all that said, Lawrence, do you feel like it's more of Sergio Perez isn't the driver up to task, or this is just how difficult it is being Max Verstappen's teammate, or a little bit of both? It's a bit of both, I think. I mean, we've seen Pierre Gasly, uh, Alex Albon, to some extent Daniel Ricciardo, struggle as Max Verstappen's teammate. And we see it a lot when there is one of these generational talents in the car and other drivers have to go up against them. You know, we saw it with Bottas, uh, we saw it with Barrichello at Schumacher, although really there it was more weighted towards Schumacher. You know, it was within contracts that he was going to basically win the championship if there was an opportunity. So, um you know, it's, uh, it, it's a tricky position to be in, but I think, yeah, Checo is, is struggling to deal with it. Because remember, all these drivers have gone through their whole life pretty much believing that they are the best driver mm-hmm. in the world and that they can win a world championship when they have the car. And then when you get given that opportunity, as Nate was just saying, and you don't do it, it is it is quite a, a, a knock to the confidence and uh, trying to get your head around that and, and reset yourself all the while the person in the other car is setting lap times that you know you cannot compete with and doing things which are very special with the car. And then you have this this thing in, in all successful teams that naturally they do tend to gravitate around the person that's going to do, do, do the best. So um, in terms of car updates, you know, the team will always do what the data tells them. So they'll always do what the wind tunnel is saying in terms of, you know, uh, how do we put more downforce on the car? But then there's also the drivability element. And if the drivers cannot realize that downforce in in an actual racing situation, then it's actually pretty pointless. But with Max, it seems like he can drive a car even when it's really, really loose at the rear and um, and just make things happen in a car that uh, perhaps any other driver gets in and struggles with. And so um, if Red Bull have found more and more performance, but it's a car that is, is quite difficult to drive, then... Um, then it's only going to go that way. Now, I think that was more the case last year than this year. This year, the car seems quite benign and well-balanced, which is one of the reasons why they are so far ahead. But um, Checo's, yeah, he's, he's going to be very disappointed because if you look specifically at his issues, it's often been the same thing. It's under braking. 
is where he's really lacking to Max. And uh, he'll be able to see that in the data and he'll be able to see where Max is breaking and he'll probably go out on a practice lap, try that, realize how difficult it is to do, mm-hmm. and then just come back in and think, you know, how on earth do I do I match that? And then that led to a mistake in uh, Australia qualifying. It's led to a mistake in Monaco qualifying mm-hmm. and it led to a mistake in Spain, all kind of issues which started in the breaking phase and then ended up either in the barrier or gravel trap. So that's um, that's what he's up against. But there's no easy way to, to find a way out of it, especially um, if, you know, the raw natural talent is is biased in one way. And I just don't really see a way that, that Checo turns that around immediately. Um, if you look back at times when that has kind of been the case and, and a driver who's perhaps not as talented has gone on to win, the most recent and obvious example is Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton. But mm-hmm. that had to get quite nasty. And um, also, Nico was on a good level in that championship, but it required a lot of bad luck for Lewis early in the year. Nico to take advantage, pile the pressure on, and then it got quite nasty between the two of them for him to go and win a championship. And Checo already, that part of the season has gone. You know, that mm-hmm. opportunity has gone. Uh, Max has already uh, got enough points uh, in the bank that even if things go wrong for him, for two or three races, you'd still put your money on him to win the championship. So I can't see a way back into it with Checo other than trying to reset, just trying to learn, trying to develop, and then having another go next year in his final uh, contract year. I was going to say, I don't think there's that much bad luck Max Verstappen could be stuck with moving forward to not win the championship this season. It would need to be quite historic levels of bad luck, you would think. Yeah, (laughs) and I just can't wrap my head around or foresee that happening. Nate, you were on the ground in Montreal and you got to spend some time with Daniel Ricciardo, who's could be a possibility um, in terms of, you know, moving forward with Red Bull. He's a part of this equation to a degree. What did he express to you about his hopes moving forward in the future? Yeah, he was very candid with me. You know, he said, I mean, he's always kind of, since he's taken the sabbatical, he's always said, I want to come back to racing with a front running team, but he's never really explicitly said, I want to race at Red Bull. You know, I think he was, you know, it's, it's a bold statement. And that's what he said to me. He said, it would be a fairy tale to come back here me, you know, here we were talking in the Red Bull hospitality. Um, and he said, you know, if I could have it my way, that's how the story of my career would end, which is interesting because, you know, going back there, I think you could, it was pretty obvious that that was something he wanted to do. But until you hear hear him say it, you know, you don't know whether he has that desire, whether he has that belief. And then you start to think, well, okay, how does he, how does he do that? How does he come back? And what was actually the most interesting thing to me was that after he said that, he said, you know, even if I have to work my way back, back up to get there, you know, I'll I'll do whatever I can. Now, I took that to to mean, you know, he's he's open to the idea of Alpha Tauri, which I then had sources confirmed to me is something he's thinking about. And that's interesting because it's a it's a big change in mindset for him. But I think it's clear you know, and we can get into this now, but I think it's clear that Ricardo, if he comes back to race, he wants to do it either at Alpha Tauri or Red Bull, with the end goal, if it is Alpha Tauri being that it's kind of a one year thing and then he ends up at Red Bull because the context here obviously being that Sergio Perez is under contract until next year. Mm. And I think it's interesting because I've had no indication yet that Perez's um, contract situation is under threat as it stands. If this form continued, that might change. But I think Red Bull are wary of just how how much they could upset things by you know, changing things up. You know, If the rivals are closer next year, you put Ricardo in the car, let's say, you don't know the Ricardo you're getting. You don't know whether you're getting the 2018 Ricardo who left you and was a mega talent or more likely and more realistically are you getting the the ricardo who struggled and is down on his confidence and then as we just talked about a driver down on his confidence you're putting him up against max verstappen how you know how's that going to work out so i think ricardo is kind of in the position of playing the long game but yeah he 
I think his mind now is slowly turning back to where, sorry, uh, when he can come back and what the the quickest route is uh, back to that seat. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. Robert Half Research indicates nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Also important to point out that AlphaTauri actually just was passed by Williams and the constructors based on Alex Albon's performance. Lawrence, you mentioned he was a former teammate of Max Verstappen. Can we please talk about what a great weekend he had for Team Williams? Obviously qualifying, they took a huge risk going into Q2, coming out on slicks when he thought that the track was drying up and then that turned out to be the rule of thumb for everybody. Everybody was trying to go back in and change the tires. A little too late for some, Sergio Perez being one. Gets the wrist done, gets into Q3, and then he's able to finish on the points on one set of tires that at at the end of the race, you thought, is he even going to make it? And and he was able to do so. Just can you characterize the drive the weekend from Alex Albon and, and if he's one of the more underrated drivers on the grid at this point? I think the most impressive thing about the weekend is that it was one of the rare tracks that actually kind of suits the Williams relative to the other teams. And that's because that car doesn't have a huge amount of downforce. They, I don't know if they were embarrassed, but um, there was photos of the floor of that car when it got lifted up in Spain and it looked very basic. Yeah. We remember. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Compared yeah, to yeah we talked about it, didn't we? <laughs> the Red Bull and the Mercedes, and, and now we've seen bits of the Ferrari as well. Um, and so that car doesn't have a huge amount of downforce, but it is quite good in a straight line. It is quite fast in a straight line. So you look at the layout of the Montreal circuit and it's one which will suit it. Now, what makes that more impressive, though, is that there was a lot of pressure then to perform. Just as we talk about, you know, Checo under pressure and other drivers under pressure, this was Williams. It's a really good chance, really good opportunity to get points. And um, they took a risk in qualifying, but a risk that was absolutely worth taking because in a normal course of events, dry qualifying, they might hope to, you know, again, track the suits and maybe they'll get like 14th, 13th tops. But um, all of a sudden, there was a route into into Q3. They took it, absolutely executed it perfectly. Let's not take anything away from that lap either. He was on the right tyres at the right time, but it was a very good, clean lap in still tricky conditions, despite being on the correct tyres at that very moment. Um, and then from there, it was really a case of, of what could they do in the race. And uh, there was that early uh, safety car and then the opportunity uh, to pit. They took it. Um, but for most teams, that then put them onto a two-stop strategy Williams decided they were going to one-stop it, and that required an awfully long stint mm. on uh, on a single set of tyres. And we've seen Alex do that before. He did it in Australia uh, last year, I think. Um, and it is, you know, it is 
a real skill because uh, one, you've got to manage your performance. You can't just drive flat out. You know, a lot of these drivers are very good at going fast, but to kind of get enough performance out of the car to remain ahead whilst um, still looking after those tyres is a real balancing act, a real serious balancing act. And then do it with pressure from behind, DRS zones and the rest of it. And again, you know, he, he complimented the car. He said, well, the car's very good in a straight line, which helps. But it was a massively skillful performance and and further proof that uh, that Alex is an incredibly good driver. But I th- we have known that for some time. And, and the question mark has always been after his uh, year at Red Bull where, um, you know, the, the pressure or year and a half it was at Red Bull, where the pressure clearly started to get to him towards the end. But he was a very young driver back then. You know, he, mm-hmm. he, he got given an opportunity that I don't think he'd expected to have at that stage of his career in fact it wasn't if you go back just a couple of years before that he didn't even look like he was going to make f1 he'd signed a deal to race in formula e before he got the call up from toro rosso uh when they basically ran out of drivers so um yeah that that all came around a bit quick and and now we're seeing a very mature talented driver in in alex and kind of doing similar things to what we saw george russell do when he was at williams so there's a possibility there i think that if um if a team is looking if they need you know if they need a driver a capable driver fast driver then they'll start to to look to alex um uh, nate and i were talking about this earlier he has a very rock solid contract um it seems at williams uh but you know the contracts come to an end and, and eventually uh either he'll look to see what williams are offering him whether they can actually move further up the grid obviously james vowels has some big plans for there but every time you talk to james it's always give us two years, give us three years, because there's a lot we need to change, um, or whether he'll be able to fast route himself up with an offer from a big team. But um, he's certainly doing all the right things for uh, for either of those circumstances uh, to come true. Yeah, he was definitely a bright spot on the weekend. Uh, unfortunately for his teammate, Logan Sargent, his race ended as quickly as it seemed to begin. There was a mechanical issues, car issue, and lap eight. And so he was forced to retire We've been somewhat critical of him in the past. Obviously, this race don't feel like you can put the onus on him for you know the car failing mm-hmm. him in that moment. But Nate, how would you describe you know Logan Sargent's future moving forward? I know that Mick Schumacher is currently with Mercedes, but it seems like he's waiting in the wings for an opportunity to open up anywhere. Yeah, and it's worth saying um, Logan also didn't have the upgrade. So you know, Albon had an upgraded car. Uh, Sargent didn't have that. Um, it was it was it was tough actually to watch the weekend from Sergeant's perspective because on Thursday he was pretty honest actually he said you know I need to do better you know I know I've been underperforming and it's actually not that often you see drivers especially at that age be that candid you know they can be very very guarded so I was actually quite impressed that he would say that to the media because you know he knew that was going to be a headline you know Williams would have said to him if you say this this will be a headline and then for him to you know maybe not have the the clean weekend to maybe show that I think he's hoping to get the upgrades in Austria. Um, I don't know with with Sergeant. I mean, I think, and I think Lawrence said this well on a few shows ago. You know, when you're a rookie, you you come in. I mean, what well, what have we had? Eight races, I think, so far. Eight is it eight or nine? Eight. I can't do my maths off the top of my head, but I think it's eight. Um, I, I keep losing. Yeah, yeah, I keep losing track. With the, there's been some cancelled. There's been you know all, all that stuff. But he's still fairly new into his Formula One career, and the Mick Schumacher thing I think is interesting because I I just never got the feeling that Mick Schumacher was that impressive when he was at Haas. If you take away those two races where he scored points, 
you know, he caused a lot of damage to the Haas team, you know, in terms of in terms of the car, you know, he was crashing quite a lot. I don't know whether that would be an upgrade. You know, I, I think that Schumacher brought with him quite a bit of baggage behind the scenes. I think he was fine, but some of the people with him certainly gave Haas a headache. You don't get that impression with Sargent. You know, Sargent's fit very well into that team. And I think that Williams, you know, especially with Vows there, but historically have been very good with young drivers. But I think it's it's been a two-way street. You know, they've had drivers who fit in there well, and you know, don't really cause a huge issue. I mean, I know that kind of you know Latifi came a bit of a meme, became a bit of a meme by the end of his career. But you never got the impression that people didn't like working with him there. You know, he might not have been the quickest driver, but he fit in, and obviously he was bringing money with him as well. So I don't know whether Sargent is imminently in danger from from Schumacher. I'm sure that Toto Wolff would want him to to get that seat. Um, but to me, when I saw the news, I don't think it's necessarily it would be an upgrade. I don't think we've seen enough from Sargent just yet to say Schumacher's better than him. You know, he certainly hasn't had the accidents that Schumacher had at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, he's had a few, he's, he's had a few offs, but he's not had anything. You know, Schumacher, if you, you know, I think it was last year for the first six months, you know, he was putting the car on the wall. Like, you know, it seemed like every, every few weekends, Sargent hasn't done that yet. I think his biggest issue, obviously he went off in Spain. His biggest issue has more just been, maybe the pace hasn't been there. There's been a few little mistakes and stuff like that. But I think if you're Williams, you want to give him a few more months, you know, and you want to see, the drive you've got by the end of the year. Cause I don't think really dropping someone in in the middle of the season is going to do Schumacher any good. Let's say that Schumacher you know, is in the frame. And it's also, obviously it's not going to do Sargent any good. You just get rid of him halfway through the year. He'll say, well, I never had a chance to prove myself. Never gave me a full it's year. Fair. And Schumacher, let's not forget Schumacher had two seasons. He didn't just have one. He had one in a very bad Haas car. Then he had one when the, you know, the car was better last year. Um, I don't know, really. I, I always say it, but I think if Mick Schumacher's name was Mick Fisher or Mick, pick any other German surname you can think of. I don't know whether people would really be that convinced that he deserves to drive anywhere on the grid. I just don't think his time in Formula One really proved that. Um, and, you know, that's coming from someone who grew up as a Schumacher fan. I wanted him in the you know, on the grid as much as anyone. But, um, but yeah, if it's a direct comparison between those two, I would, I would definitely stick rather than twist. But Williams might look at it differently. Um, but I don't think he's bringing more to the team than Sargent does currently. Also, um, Sargent... Williams invested quite a lot in Sargent's career already. You know, for, yeah. they basically funded his F2 career. And to just write that off after eight races seems like a very strange Harsh. business decision. Yeah. And as you say, I mean, it, look, if if the other option was like Max Verstappen, sure. Okay. You know, obviously you're going <laughs> to stick him in. But the other option is Mick Schumacher. And, and for all the reasons that Nate said, you know, he's he mm. didn't do enough to impress uh, last year then and, and suggest that he's, he's the right option. And at the moment, Williams... Like, you know, they need results like they had in Canada from Alex. They need results where they're going to, you know, just scrape a few points here and there, get themselves off the foot of the uh, Constructors' Championship, get a few more million in the bank. It's very much a long-term process. And just chopping between drivers at this stage isn't going to help with the development of the car. It isn't going to help with anything, really. It's going to help with morale within the team. So I, I just don't see a situation where it would make any sense to do that. And... um it's very easy to say, isn't it? Look, you know, swap drivers around mid-season, but that's it's so much harder for for the driver coming in than uh, than you might imagine, uh, because with no testing and uh, you know getting to know even just understanding what every button does on the steering wheel is not an easy thing to do within the space of a couple of races. So you're potentially throwing away um, a couple of opportunities there, and you know it just it just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, longer term, maybe you know, I mean. Um, Maybe uh, it could be could be an option if Mick Schumacher comes with some funding for 2024, 2025 and Logan can't compete. Maybe. Sure. You know, then you're adding something worthwhile. But midseason just doesn't make sense to me. There's something think... that... Go ahead. Sorry, Katie. 
I think the 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 Albon equation here is important as well. I think it's a bit and and Lawrence, you know, mentioned with with when when Russell was there. I don't think any driver really who's available would look good currently against Albon. Albon's performing so well. So it's easy to think, oh, this driver's just just rubbish, but you know, it might just be the benchmark they're up against is a bit higher. And then yeah, and then it comes back to exactly what what Lawrence was saying. So many reasons to just not get rid of someone. Um but I think whoever you put in there right now, if it's Schumacher, whoever it is, Albon's gonna be the better guy. I was just gonna say that you put a premium on continuity in this sport, certainly. And I think as Lawrence had mentioned, if you append that at this moment, you wouldn't have the continuity uh, to be able to progress. And just, yeah. And just on Albon, I think it's worth us saying, because I'm so impressed with him currently. And I know there was certainly a desire last year uh, within his camp to see if he could get out of that contract, not saying he wanted to get out of it desperately, but I think he recognized that there was an opportunity to move around the grid and there was definitely interest in him. And I think that going forward, we talked about Ricardo earlier. I, <clears throat> If I was predicting anything now, I would say, let's say we do get a year where Danny Rick ends up in AlphaTauri and Albon is still doing this at Williams next season. He's not affiliated with Red Bull anymore, but I think Albon going back to Red Bull, I think is just as likely as as Ricardo. It was very telling Christian Horner, every interview he did uh, on Sunday, you know, with all the different broadcasters, he just out of nowhere would say, I have to say as well, great drive from Alex. Obviously, there's a former link there, but it's sure. it's not a link that exists currently. So I think Red Bull and on Albon as well, when everyone says Albon and Gasly together, both didn't com- compete against Verstappen, which is true. When Gasly left, you got the impression it was his fault from the team. You know, they said Gasly didn't really fit in well here. He didn't really listen to feedback, etc. That was kind of the rap on him. With Albon, you could tell that Red Bull kind of wanted it to work. And the only reason really in the end it didn't was because they realized going into 21, we need a competitive second driver. And they had Sergio Perez available. And they said, we're not going to get a driver this competitive, this well-rounded, this experience. And Albon hadn't quite done enough to to kind of keep that seat. But I think when he left, there was an understanding that we probably didn't do fully right by him either. That's why Red Bull kind of did keep him around. So Albon's actually a really interesting character going forward, I think, in the driver market because a lot of teams are probably looking at him right now and saying that guy is super, super fast. And, you know, like Lawrence mentioned, that's not an easy drive to do what he did at the weekend. So, yeah, I think he's going to be a name we're talking about a lot more like in the next year or so, just because, you know, and that contract does, I said to Lawrence earlier, it seems like it's made from cement from everything I've heard from it. It's very difficult to get out of. But if he can get out of it and or, or if he's just able to, you know, obviously to leave at the end of next year, uh, I think we'll go somewhere pretty good. The way you just described him, near the end of your answer kind of reminds me of the way that people talk about Lando Norris and smaller storyline coming out of obviously the race weekend was the five second penalty he received for unsportsmanlike conduct for driving too slow under a safety car. So he finished ninth on track, but ultimately fell back to 13th out of the points because of that five second penalty being added on after the fact he seemed a little surprised or wasn't understanding where it came from and why. And I think Nate, you had an opportunity to explain to him exactly why he yeah. received the penalty and he he understood it from that point. Yeah. So I think I, I couldn't have been the first journalist to explain it to him because he'd been through about seven interviews by that point with the media, but um, he came, he came in and we asked him, you know, do you know what the penalty was for? Uh, and he said, no. And somebody, one of the, one of the journalists said, so you're unsportsmanlike now or something. Very weird way of asking the question. And Lando was kind of like, what do you mean? And then we said, well, the, you know, the penalty was called unsportsmanlike conduct. And we explained it to him. Um, but yeah, it was just a funny moment because they come pretty much straight from the car to the media pen as well. So he obviously hadn't really had, he obviously knew he had a penalty, but I don't know whether he'd been told it that it was called unsportsmanlike conduct. I don't know. Um, 
but yeah, very. It, it was just kind of a funny situation. And actually, to be honest with you, I think this has taken on a bit of a life of its own on social media because mm-hmm. a driver as experienced as Lando should know what he did was wrong. I don't know whether the wording has you know has a different translation and it does mean different things in different sports. But I think ultimately it was a fair penalty, and the fact that McLaren didn't really com- protest about it themselves, I think, speaks volumes. Lawrence, I mean, do we see these unsportsmanlike conduct penalties often in the sport? And and what's the kind of variety or range that we could see possibly from driving too slow under a safety car, X, Y, Z? Yeah, we don't we don't see them that often. Uh, but this is something that is is very tempting to do under a safety car. So what happened is you had uh, Piastri and Norris running uh, line astern. And uh, if you create a big enough gap to your teammate, if you're the following car, you create a big enough gap to your teammate, uh, you can both pit under the safety car and neither of you will lose any positions because you create a gap, your teammate pits, the team does its kind of two and a half second thing and off he goes. And then if you time it perfectly, you're just coming into the pits afterwards and you haven't had to sit there and wait while other cars are getting service and going past you on the way out. So that, that that's why he got penalised and um, and it, and it's fair. And the reason it was called unsportsmanlike behaviour, which is not, or whatever it was, conduct, which is not something we regularly see in stewards' decisions, uh, was because it was uh, considered to be a breach of the International Sporting Code uh, that refers to any infringement of the principles of fairness and competition behaviour in an unsportsmanlike manner or attempt to influence the results of a competition <laughs> in a way that is contrary to sport and ethics will be penalised. And that's kind Are of... Are you reading that or did you have that memorised? Or is it I, tattooed I that, on your arm? That memorised. Uh, <laughs> okay. yeah. Honestly, um, you should, the, the, stuff, the stuff Lawrence has memorised, Katie, is remarkable, Oh it, like it's a, the, the the car journeys into circuits is me saying I've forgotten my hat and him reeling off <laughs> things like that. It's it's quite remarkable. I'm really impressed. And, and just in case you're wondering, that's article twelve point two point one dot L. Perfect. Lawrence carries the book with him. You know, people some carry a wallet. He carries a he carries a little <laughs> sporting code with him. Uh, Please anyway, carry so, on. That's what it was. But it was it was absolutely right. You know, if you watch the video, um, and the, the stewards pointed out that there was about fifty kilometers an hour difference between uh, Piastri and and Norris as they went down the straight towards towards the pits. They're both being told they were going to box. Uh, Norris seems to suggest that he didn't know he was going to box, but the radio comms suggest that uh, he he should have been aware of it at least. And um, yes, yeah, so 50 kilometers an hour, 30 miles per hour under a safety car. That's quite a lot. If you watch the onboard, Piastri just turns into a little dot in the distance, disappears. Uh, you can't really see him as he's, as he's going into the pit lane. So it kind of seemed obvious what Norris was doing. If, if he didn't know he was doing that, then you'd have to question it as well, because that seems like a strange, you know, strange course of action. So um, yeah, I think uh, he was perhaps a bit uh, annoyed because he hadn't been told it during the race. And I think the team didn't tell him because if you tell a driver that you got a five second penalty, it alters the way they race and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they can get angry with it. So um, yeah, a little bit to sort out afterwards and a bit of a confusing situation, but I don't think you can argue with how the stewards implemented the rules in on, on this occasion. I think it's, it's right. And I think if anyone does it at a future race, they'll get exactly the same penalty. Lando's in a weird place at the moment, isn't he? Because when I did speak to, you know, when we were speaking to him in the mix zone, I said, you know, was that, so I, I think I started off by saying, was that, you know, was that a frustrating race? You know, you worked so hard at the end and obviously had the moment with Ocon, but, you know, lost, potentially lost points at the end. And he said, no, that was probably my best race of the year, most fun race of the year. And, you know, this is, this is a, you know, Lando Norris mm-hmm. we're talking about, you know, a mega talent on the grid. And I think he had a great move on Piastri, which he did point out, you know, there were some nice overtakes, but just so strange, you know, he's, he, he seems, um, I, I don't know what the word is, but it's like he's, he's struggling to, enjoy the situation he's in you're struggling to find any joy from 
from that. He's obviously racing in Formula One. He enjoys that part of it, but you yeah. wonder where his head's at at the moment. And I think, um, yeah, I, I I don't know. He some of his answers I find quite interesting at the moment because he can be quite short, quite blunt, and it's different to the Lando of maybe last year when he thought, okay, maybe the car's only going to be bad this year. You know, maybe maybe you know it's it just got to be a bit patient. You wonder if that patience is wearing thin as well. So, just um. Yeah, just and, and a shame as well because I think Lando is just such a talented driver. You know, I think he's one of those guys that when he's at the front, I think he'll be, I think he'll be, you know, pretty awesome to watch. Um, so I think that on top of the fact, the fact he was being asked this question about this unsportsmanlike penalty, I think he, I think he just gave some, you know, moderately spicy answers just off the back of that as well. A team that's starting to find uh, a little bit of joy here lately, regardless of George Russell's retirement. Um, due to a brake issue after going into the barrier early on in the race in Canada is Mercedes. Lawrence and I, you, we had talked about this last week on unlapped. If you were a Mercedes fan, would you go into Canada more giddy or would you go in a little cautious, a little apprehensive that, you know, these upgrades weren't going to show consistency and progress. And I think it's fair to say, Lawrence, you had mentioned that Montreal wasn't necessarily the track to lend itself to, to the Mercedes car at the moment, but for Lewis Hamilton to end up on the podium, and likely George Russell would have been in the mix, certainly up up there near the front, had you know his day gone a little bit differently. These upgrades are working. They've got another upgrade package coming at Silverstone um, in a couple weekends, July 9th. Toto says if any of the races they're going to win on the calendar, it's going to be that one. Do you agree, or is he just trying to keep everybody uh, watching these races moving forward because it's uh, Max Verstappen's to win? I think it is Max Verstappen's to win, but if you're going to ask if there's any race you could win or you're most likely to win, what's it going to be? Silverstone's going to be right at the top of their list uh, because one, they do have this upgrade package coming. Uh, they've talked about how this new direction, which they started off in in Monaco with a big upgrade package and it's um, been on the car in Spain and Canada, obviously, and they've kind of refined it slightly, found a bit more performance. Well, that's also opened up um, some new development opportunities in the wind tunnel, and that's what's going to come onto the car in Silverstone. So they made a step, and they believe there's another state step to find um, uh, as soon as Silverstone. So that's all very positive. Now, I don't think anyone at Mercedes is expecting it to get them close to Red Bull, especially around a circuit like Silverstone, which will suit the Mercedes, but will also suit the Red Bull. But, you know, I think there is this question is, can Red Bull win every race? And the obvious answer every time is, Probably not, because at some point something's going to go wrong, be it reliability, um, you know, unfortunately time, safety car, weather on the wrong lap, that kind of thing. And uh, all of those things can happen at Silverstone. So I think what Toto is probably saying is that they're most likely to be in a position to capitalise on anything that happens to Red Bull uh, or a track like Silverstone. And I think it's a track where, for example, they should hope to be ahead of Aston Martin who also made a significant step uh, in in Canada. But I think um, it wasn't quite as obvious because uh, Fernando was dealing with some brake issues towards the end of the race. and um, But even so, he still fell behind Lewis and got back ahead of him, which kind of shows you that while Mercedes have made steps, Aston Martin aren't hanging around either. So um, I, I think they're looking at Silverstone because they know it's a track a bit like uh, Spain, some similar characteristics. In Spain, they were the obvious best of the rest. Um, they were still a long way off Max, but they got two cars on the podium. And so they're looking at Silverstone and I think they're thinking, you know, why not something similar there? Um, it's also a kind of relatively a home race for them and a number of teams actually, uh, including Aston Martin, who are just across the road, but it's a home race as well for Mercedes. So um, there's always an, a venue where they they look to do pretty well and they actually have done pretty well in the past. So 
Um, yeah, I think there's 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 an opportunity there, but I don't think he's saying look, we're going to go to Silverstone and win, <laughs> just mm-hmm. beat Red Bull straight up. He's saying we're going to go there and we'll have a chance to take advantage. It's said that Red Bull is already focusing on next year's car. Lawrence, how much time do you think that Mercedes should focus on 2023 versus the 2024 car? And can you just describe how teams kind of split their focus on the season that we're in and then obviously the future? Yeah, I'd be surprised if there isn't a single team that hasn't devoted some focus at least towards uh, next year. The good news is we've got relatively stable regulations, uh, even more stable than uh, they were from last year to this year uh, because there was a change in in the floor height and stuff like that. Um, So... Uh, you can, if you develop something and it works for this year's car, well, it will actually work for next year's car as well. Um, so while Red Bull may be looking at stuff for 2024, uh, they aren't really planning a concept change. They have this very good, uh, rich vein of uh development that they're tapping into at the moment so they'll just be going deeper and deeper into that and some of that will help this year's car some of it may require some more fundamental changes and they'll be looking at how they can do that in 24 meanwhile mercedes um have made some big changes already to this car but there's some certain stuff that they just cannot change because it would require a new chassis and they can't build and develop a new chassis under the cost cap because they will blow it all within the space of a couple of months so uh but they can develop one for next year because they're going to need new chassis anyway next year so um so th- that's what they're working on is is kind of trying to understand the big changes they can make um but that's the thing you know because the regulations are stable any benefits you find now and now that mercedes have gone off on this different development path by changing the front suspension any d- any advantages they can find there will feed into next year as well so um i think Compared to other seasons where we've talked about the importance of focusing on the following year as opposed to this year, it's probably a little bit more successful this year just because the regulations are going to be stable going through. Um, but anyone looking to really mix up the concepts of the car, um, one, they will have to make those decisions very soon because when we're talking about big things like rear suspension mounting points and cockpit positions and stuff like that, that all has to be agreed on relatively early on. Uh, and then, you know, the stuff which they're working on up towards the launch of the car um you know it's all very small little aero flicks and you know fancy bits but the the fundamental decisions really have to be put in place now so um mercedes will be doing that red bull will be doing that as well uh but they will be doing it with knowledge and and lessons and you know understanding from the current car that they can then put into uh into next year's I'm just reminiscing about the three of us standing in New York City at the Red Bull launch this year and squinting at the RB19 to see if there was any difference in that livery whatsoever <laughs> and not finding a single difference. Well, that was because we were actually squinting at an RB18, like just, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, just exactly. repainted. Um, but, it might as well have been yeah. the RB19. Yeah, we, we might as well have been looking at the same thing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's it, it's an interesting development ground and seeing how much teams vary from what they have now Uh, because Ferrari is another team where you know you kind of feel that they had a good concept when they hit the ground running in 2022 Mm -hmm. now it seems like they've hit a bit of a ceiling with that so how big a change do they make how brave do they get back at Marinello uh, to make some big changes because you kind of feel if they carry on the same you know same direction they are at the moment can't really see it you know overhauling Red Bull but then to make that big concept change is such a big step because you're basically, you know, not writing off, but you are disregarding a lot of what you've worked on so far for something which you 
is kind of a unknown, a journey into the unknown. Um, so yeah, it'd be fascinating to see what decisions teams are making. And they'll be making them now, but we won't find out until start next year. Must be two words drivers hate hearing more than any is concept change for that reason. You know, imagine that you're just because it, you know, you know that the rest of the years are right off and probably spilling into next year as well is questionable, especially if you do it this late if you're Ferrari as well. Yeah, people don't seem to uh, love change. They seem to resist it from time to time. Speaking of change and a possibility of change in the sport, Birdstone has actually um, lodged a bid to replace Pirelli as the Formula One tire supplier uh, beginning in 2025, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, could we could we see this happening? And, and would teams, drivers welcome this change or are they set and happy with Pirelli at this point? I think the drivers certainly would. I think drivers for a long time have had, uh, it's fair to say, reservations with uh, the Pirelli tyre. And I feel for Pirelli to a degree because they've had a very specific... So they've been the tyre supplier solely for F1 since 2011. Um, and especially over the last few years, they've had very specific remits from Formula 1 of kind of the, the types of tyre they need to be developing. And the issue has always been that drivers don't feel that the tyres really give them what they want. You know, they don't have tyres that they can push on perfectly Pirelli's been kind of you know I guess is, has been at different points has been trying to work out how to make because ultimately if the tires aren't great the racing's not going to be great you know you need that variation in the tires but you also need tires that drop off at certain points and stuff like that and drivers there's other things as well I mean there's there's all sorts of issues going on at the moment with you know tire blankets etc that's been a long-running issue so I think if it was down to the drivers solely I think that they'd happily just kind of put the Pirellis in the bin and say let's move on to someone else uh and Bridgestone has history you know they were the guys that were in before Pirelli um you know and they were to me I mean growing up Bridgestone felt like they were always involved in some way that used to be Bridgestone and Michelin, you know, through the, um, through, through the Schumacher era. So they really would come in and, you know, they, they've launched what sounds like a very serious bid. Uh, they would come in with, you know, some quite serious pedigree there as well. So I think it's very much open. You know, I think that Pirelli, you know, speaking to people at Pirelli this weekend, it's the first time they've actually seemed, you know, kind of convinced that this could be the, this could be the beginning of the end of their, of their time as a sole supplier. Lawrence, do you agree? Do you feel like it would be a good change? Um, so Bridgestone, yes, when they were in the sport, they created very durable, uh, arguably tyres with better characteristics than the ones we have now. But there's been some big, big changes. You know, we're talking over a decade since Bridgestone were last in the sport. The cars are now 200 kilos heavier. They create more downforce than they've ever created before. They're lapping faster than ever. So the strain on the tyre is far greater than it ever was when Bridgestone were in the sport. And I don't know, because uh, I've not asked and I've you know, not really seen uh, what Bridgestone have been up to in that decade, but that's a huge amount of development. And so not only would they, there's no guarantee that they're able to build a tyre that's better, they also have to then go through a testing process. And mm -hmm. the problem with testing tyres for Formula 1 car is that you need a Formula One car and it's no good having a Formula One car from five years ago because it will not be the same as a Formula One car now. And ideally you want the best drivers in the car as well to give you feedback. Now, Pirelli have, have had this, this testing process over some time and sure, if Bridgestone get the nod, uh, you'd hope that there would be enough um, uh, availability of cars and teams and drivers to make sure they have a full testing process in place. But it seems to me like it would be a, a big, big, you know, a big commitment, a big step. And while, yes, their history suggests they are up to it, 
it's um it's asking an awful lot uh, of of a company and and then to believe that they would all of a sudden solve all of F1's issues with Bridgestone tires I'm not 100% convinced but look I mean if they do win it there'll be good reasons for it it will, it goes to what we call a tender so uh the FIA have to decide from a sporting perspective and then Formula 1 so Stefano Domenicali decides from a commercial perspective because, of course, being F1's tyre supply is not just about supplying the tyres. There's also the important thing of the exposure you get from it uh, the um, and the amount of money you pump into it to get that exposure back as well. So um, all of that will have to be decided behind closed doors. And I, I fully trust that F1 would make the right decision. And I fully trust that Bridgestone would be able to create tyres that, that are capable of, of, of you know, of existing in Formula One and, and and working on Formula One cars, I just question whether they're going to be this kind of fix all, uh, instant you know solution to all the problems that drivers have with the tires at the moment, which is mainly overheating when they're behind others, and uh, and also just yeah dealing with the immense strain of um of these very heavy Formula One cars now with a lot of downforce going through extremely high speed corners, you know, uh, getting that right is not easy. And obviously safety is, is the thing that has to come first. So um, yeah, I, uh, I hope that if Bridgestone do do it, they just get every opportunity to test and uh, everyone is on board and we all fully commit to it and it, and it, it works for them, but yeah, just a bit dubious that it's going to solve F1's tire issues completely. We have a, we have a Pirelli media dinner on Friday as well. So I'm hoping that with the extra fear of losing the seat, the meals, the meals always amazing pre-British GP, but it's uh but no, I, I agree with Lawrence, just, you know, joking aside, I think it could be a case of, you know, uh, be careful what you wish for, you know, better the devil, you know, type thing, because there's, I think the, the grass dirty isn't only secret... greener. Yeah. And I think really, I think Lawrence hit the nail on the head. You know, the dirty secret is that Formula One cars, you know, they're changing so much. And I don't really think that there's a, an easy solution to it because there's so many things um and i think drivers drive the other issue is that drivers and engineers always want very different things don't they from from what hits the track so i don't know i i think um it'll be an interesting one to follow but um i just hope it's not something where it's you know one step forward two steps back for formula one because you know if a new tire supplier comes in and they and they don't get it right everyone's got those tires and then the, and then the narrative isn't we don't like pirelli it's suddenly well we don't like bridgestone now so mm-hmm. you know i don't think that would help anyone Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, regardless of the tires on these cars, there are certain teams that have had underwhelming starts to this season. Williams obviously had a bright spot in Alex Albon's weekend. We mentioned that earlier, but I'm just curious of the teams kind of at the bottom of the barrel so far this season. Lawrence, who would you say has been somewhat of a disappointment? 
I think the most disappointing team is the one at the bottom of the championship. I'm not just saying that because that's the way the points have fallen, but Alpha Tauri, um, a team which, you know, <laughs> we always used to joke that they would target fifth in the Constructors Championship every year and almost inevitably never get there. But I think kind of seventh or so is where they should be because you've got to remember, rear end of that car is all Red Bull. So Red Bull gearbox, Red Bull rear suspension, Honda engine, just like Red Bull. And yet they're doing something wrong with the rest of it uh, to be so far off the pace. Um, I guess you've got to look a little bit at the drivers as well. You know, Nick DeVries coming in, essentially a rookie. Uh, Yuki Tsunoda, it feels like he has stepped up significantly this year. But I do wonder as well, without Pierre Gasly's kind of gauge him against, it's harder to know how much of that is a step up and how much of that is Yuki making just like an incremental gain. Um, so, yeah, I just feel like, you know, they've... Uh, they've not quite got it right and they've failed to execute a few times in races, which has always been a trait of Alpha Tauri in, in recent years. So, um, yeah, I, I, if I look at all of the teams at, at the back of the grid right now, they're the most disappointing with with the resources they've got. But there's, um, you know, there, there's other candidates as well. You know, I mean, Haas seem to have great qualifying pace at the moment. Every time they mm. get in a race, just disappears. So that's no good. You know, it, it's all well and good. Nico Hulkenberg qualifying second mm. in uh, in in Canada, of course. He then got the grid penalty, but the pace was there for second in the wet, right? But there was every sign that in the race, even if it started second, it wouldn't have made much difference. He probably would have finished out the points. So there's something very wrong going on there. But um, yeah, uh, it's it, it is tough in F1. You know, it's tough at the back of the grid, isn't it? Like you. You don't have quite as many eyeballs on you. It's not the Sergio Perez situation where everyone's saying like you should be winning every race, but um, but it is it is tricky to get get the results together. And then eventually, when we look at the constructors' championship, you realise the big difference between the the very top teams and and the ones at the back. Nate, who would you say? Yeah, mine would have been Haas as well. I mean, uh, we talked about Perez, but um, you know, three three straight um, disappointing races. But Haas haven't been in the points for three races either. And I think where they were last year, I think. You know, I think the team pointed and said, we have one competitive driver in KMAG. We've got a good car and Schumacher didn't get the most out of the car. So they've gone to two experienced drivers. And I think now the car's letting them down more than the drivers are. And I think that's always so frustrating for a team because one of the whole the, one of the whole points of getting this lineup they've got with Magnus and Hulkenberg was um, if the car's there, we'll be able to snatch points. And at the moment, it's just not, it's just not up to that. So yeah, that's pretty disappointing. Um, and just to quickly circle back, because Lawrence mentioned Yuki, and I know that our friend Josh listens to this podcast sometimes. You would have seen it, um, but our friend Josh, who was head of uh, social and digital content at Alpha Tower, got thrown into the river uh, in Canada because he's leaving the team. And then Yuki jumped in after him. Uh, but Yuki gave him a nice send off on the radio at the end of the race, which I thought was a great touch, and just added to the Yuki Yuki Sonoda being a good guy um, that we you know that we've known for a while now. But yeah, I just I wanted to say that before we before we signed off because it was a pretty cool moment. And apparently, everybody on uh, on Twitter is now sending memes about Josh to Josh, which is funny because <laughs> awesome. he's used to seeing them about Yuki, obviously being one of his drivers. So yeah, it was a nice touch. Yuki stays in the water. Wasn't Daniel Ricardo with him on a boat? Was that in Australia or where was that? And he Yuki just seems to love just jumping into, into the water. Things. Yeah, I don't know what's wrong with him, but uh, he just seems to. But what's great about the framing of that video in Canada is they throw Josh in, and then just out of nowhere, Yuki Sonoda just comes kind of flipping in out of nowhere, like you know, <laughs> just it's obviously like, well, I want a piece of this as well, and in a really nice like Alpha Towery kind of <laughs> like bit of clothing as well. He's not he's not changed into something else. He's obviously jumped into some pretty nice clothing. So, yeah. Love Yuki. They, they basically yeah, saw they saw you walking into the paddock after leaving your raincoat, and they yeah, decided like, that they needed to be wet like you. Yeah, they said that can't be that bad. Look, he's just walking in with nothing. We'll just jump straight in. <laughs> Too good.
As always, I appreciate your guys' time. Enjoy the weekend off. We'll be back with more previewing the Austrian, Austrian Grand Prix. And remember, if you're watching us on YouTube, like this video, leave us a comment, and don't forget to subscribe to ESPN for more F1 content. And if you're listening, hit us with a five-star review. Thanks. Cheers.